It's the big one. The Sky Half Price Sale is here. Choose from award-winning Sky TV and everything on Netflix or unmissable sports with every single live Premier League game on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports all half price. Take Sky Cinema and watch the biggest blockbusters or grab Sky Broadband Ultrafast for lightning fast speeds. Choose one that suits you. They're all half price for six months. Save big in the Sky Half Price Sale. Search Sky Half Price. Availability subject to location, TV and broadband products sold separately. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. Setup fees, min terms and further terms apply. Offer ends 2nd of September. What does marriage mean to you? Is it for the sake of a day out, the rest of your life, or is it for eternity? What is the importance of it? What does the wearing of a ring bounding you to another mean to your soul? It is the life of a woman from Dublin which answers these questions for us. This is her story. In Rathmines, Dublin, in 1888, a child was born. Her name was Grace Gifford. Grace was the second youngest of 12 children born to her parents. Her parents were, at the time, considered to be in a mixed marriage. Grace's father, Frederick, was a Roman Catholic and a very successful solicitor. It was his employment that afforded them the cost of living in Rathmines. Her mother was a Protestant called Isabella Julia Burton. Their marriage was one which the Catholic Church would have been embarrassed by. As a result of this intolerance, they married in St George's Church, a Protestant church on the north side of Dublin. As an agreement before marriage, Grace's parents decided that their sons would be baptised as Catholic and their daughters to be baptised as Protestant. Grace attended the Alexandra College in Milltown, Dublin, a Church of Ireland fee-paying boarding school. It was in this school that Grace was expected to become a proper young woman. She was expected to learn how to use the correct knife and how to show courtesy to those with titles, most of which were gifted rather than earned. Instead of gaining airs and graces in school, Grace instead flourished in the craft of the idle mind. She showed she was not destined for, or had she a want, for high-class dinner parties. She was instead a soul developed to take complex themes and display them visually. Grace was born to be an artist. At the age of 16, as a result of her ability to manipulate paint, Grace was permitted access to the Dublin Metropolitan School of Art, today known as the National College of Art and Design. It was here that the artist William Orpen took notice of her ability and accepted Grace to study under him. William was an Irish artist who had made a name for himself in the art halls of London. 
William guided Grace through her early years crafting her skills. When questioned, he openly would describe Grace as one of his most talented pupils. Such was his admiration for her, he sketched Grace and displayed the image as part of his Young Ireland expedition. Grace's real talent began to become recognised when it was clear her abilities lay in caricature art. It was through these abilities she was able to gain access to a fine art course in the Slade School of Art in London. Her teachers noted her as being remarkably gifted. She was not only able to capture and display social topics at the time, she was also able to convey the social mood and subtle outcry of the times through her art. She spent 12 months in the school specialising in caricature art and returned home to Dublin in 1908. Although she had only been gone for a year, Grace found it difficult to settle back into life in Dublin. It was not that Dublin had changed. Grace just found work for a caricaturist hard to come by. In a land where the oppression of the majority was the norm, there wasn't many publishers willing to publish art which conveyed a social mood which reflected poorly on the lords overseeing the oppression of the Irish. Grace enjoyed a lively social life however, and it was through this lifestyle she began to come across people seeking out art such as hers. People who wanted the world to see what the Irish people were living through under British rule. She became friends with Nora Dryhurst, an Irish nationalist working as a journalist in London. Nora and Grace got on very well and often accompanied each other to parties and events as they flew solo. It was Nora who brought Grace to the opening of a new bilingual school in Ranelagh. The school was a mixed Irish and English speaking school brought into existence by Podrick Pierce. The party for the school's opening was a who's who of the Irish creative world. Pierce was the son of a sculptor and he himself was a poet as well as being a nationalist. During the party, Nora and Grace got separated, and Grace's life was to change forever. As Grace looked across the room for Nora, to no avail, she made eye contact with a young, slim, sharply dressed man. He had Mediterranean tanned skin, which he would explain to Grace was a result of having lived abroad in North Africa. As Grace looked across the room, she kept making eye contact with the tanned-skinned man. He walked up to her and said, Diagut, Ismisha Joseph. Grace bashfully replied with her name. Joseph responded, Oh, I know who you are, Miss Gifford. We have a mutual friend. Joseph explained how he was a friend of Grace's brother-in-law, Thomas McDonough. Thomas was married to Grace's sister, Muriel. Grace, full in the knowledge of the type of man Thomas was, knew that if Joseph was a friend of his, then he must be a decent fellow, 
as Thomas did not waste time on fools. As the two talked, the room began to empty for them both. Whilst nobody left the room, to Grace and Joseph it was only they who stood in it. They were totally enamoured with each other. On that evening they discussed all kinds of topics. They discussed the mutual friends they shared. They discussed political views. They even discussed their opposing religions. Joseph was from an arch-Catholic family. His father was a papal count. Grace had herself began to become interested in the Catholic religion as a result of the art she was not allowed to display, which showed the repression. She found Joseph's insights into the religion fascinating, and she insisted they meet up again to discuss the topic even further. That they did, and over the next few weeks and months they met up regularly, walking along the banks of the Dublin canals sharing their views on the world's biggest issues. Then, one evening, as they walked through their city, Joseph saw Grace's hand dangle carelessly from her sleeve, and being the ever-rebel, he took it in his hand and wrapped his fingers around hers. A great giddy joy and warmth swarmed around Grace's heart. She tilted a gentle smile as Joseph's racing heart began to calm. In 1915, after bounding their souls together, Joseph proposed to Grace. Without the shadow of a doubt or a stutter, Grace accepted with glee. In order for the wedding to take place, Grace was asked by Joseph's family to convert to becoming a Catholic. She did so without hesitation, as nothing was going to stop her from spending eternity with her true love. Grace's family did not fully approve of the wedding, not for religious reasons, but at the time because Joseph's health was not great. Joseph had suffered as a child with tuberculosis, which was what led him to living as a child in North Africa. They were not sure she should marry a man with poor health. This worry was not enough to worry Grace, however and they pressed on with planning their wedding. Around the same time as Grace and Joseph's engagement, Grace's sister too became engaged. The two couples decided that Easter weekend 1916 would be perfect for them to hold a double marriage. Fate has a funny way of toying with you. It can lead you to believe all things in your life are on course for perfection. It can lead you to believe that the things you believe are meant for you are on their way. It can fool you into believing your wishes are to be your gains. While Grace and Joseph were planning their wedding, their friends were busy making other plans. Their friend, Podrick Pierce, Grace's brother-in-law, Thomas McDonough, and others were part of a group organizing the last great push for Irish freedom. While Grace and Joseph were planning to be wed on Easter 1916, their friends were planning on ending the union of Ireland and Britain.
It was while engaged to Grace that Joseph had become involved in the Irish Republican Brotherhood. He was sent by them to arrange with Sir Roger Casement the delivery of guns from Germany to Ireland in order for them to be equipped for a revolution. When he returned, he was seen as someone who could be trusted. He was appointed to the IRB Military Committee and was part of a group responsible for organising the 1916 Easter Rising, due to take place on the same weekend as his wedding. Grace, although terribly disappointed, understood Joseph's role in the Rising and how important it was to him and for his people, the people of Ireland. In the weeks leading up to the Rising, Joseph's health began to decline and it looked as though he was going to be too sick to take part. When the call went out, however, for the sons and daughters of Erin to rise one last time and pull the harp from the grips of the crown, Joseph rose like Lazarus from a sickbed. Joseph's days in the rising were eventful to say the least, but I save his tale for a later date. As the rising roared to a full flame only to be quashed by the Empire, Grace watched on weeping for the fate of her love. Joseph, being one of the rising's leaders, was instantly carted off to Kilmainham Jail when the Celtic soul was buried in the soil by the might of greed. Grace awaited on word from Kilmainham as to what the fate of her fiancé might be. She prayed and prayed and prayed, not for his release, but for his life. It was on the 3rd of May, Grace came into her sister's house and was greeted by the roaring wail of a newly widowed woman. She saw on the floor her sister, the wife of Thomas McDonough, bellowing a hollow roar of pain, having learnt of her husband's execution that morning. Grace learned of how Thomas was taken into a courtyard of the prison and executed by firing squad. She also heard of her friends Podrick Pierce and Thomas Clark, who too had been executed that day. Grace fell to the floor with her heart shattered. She understood that her Joseph was due the same fate. She went looking for any information on when it may happen and heard from a priest friend that Joseph was due to be executed the following morning. Grace grabbed all the money she had and ran to the nearest jewellers in Dublin. She then ran back to the priest and begged him to arrange for their marriage before Joseph was to be executed. He went to the authorities in the city with her request. Kilmainham jail at just a few minutes before midnight, a sick and weary Joseph was taken from his cell and marched through the corridors with his hands in cuffs. He was brought to the chapel of the jail. When the large heavy doors opened, at the side of the altar was his dear Grace, standing next to Father Eugene McCarthy. He was walked up with two British soldiers gripping his arms tightly. 
The cuffs were briefly removed and the two were married in the eyes of God and the law. When the ceremony ended, the cuffs were placed back in Joseph's hands and he was marched back to his cell. The weeping grace was taken out of the chapel. Not for the briefest moment were they allowed to be together as a married couple. Grace herself later wrote of the experience. He was so unselfish he never thought of himself. He was not frightened, not at all, not the slightest. I'm sure he must have been worn out after the week's experiences, but he did not show any signs of it, not in the least. He was quite calm. I was never left alone with him, even after the marriage ceremony. I was brought in and was put in front of the altar, and he was brought down the steps, and the cuffs were taken off him, and the chaplain went on with the ceremony. Then the cuffs were put on him again. I was not alone with him, not for a minute. I had no private conversation with him at all. I just came away then. At 2am, as Grace, a now-married woman, sat alone in the priest's house, she heard an army vehicle pull up in front of the house. From it, two army officers walked to the door and instructed her to join them. They took her to see her husband one last time. They were given 10 minutes to be together, but not alone. Grace wrote, There would be a guard there, and you could not talk. I was just a few moments there to get married, and then again a few minutes to say goodbye that night. And a man stood there with his hand in his watch, and he said, Ten minutes. A few hours later, as Grace waited in her sister's house, word came through that Joseph was no longer amongst the living, and he had joined Emmett, Tone, Pierce and Clark as the Martyrs of Ireland. Grace knew little of the Rising's plans before it happened. This was intentional, as she could not be held for the plans of her husband if she never knew them. It was for her husband's memory that Grace became highly political. She was to continue his fight for him. She devoted herself to both art and politics. In 1917, she became so heavily involved in the revolution that she was elected to the Sinn Féin executive. Whilst in this role, a further heartbreak visited her door as her sister Muriel joined her husband Thomas in the lands of the clouds as she suffered a heart attack, most likely as a result of heartbreak. Grace, with no children of her own, cared for Muriel's children after her death and was a very loving aunt. In 1923, Grace was at the forefront of the Irish Civil War. Her role in attaining Irish freedom led her to be on the opposing side of the treaty. As a result, she was thrown into Kilmainham jail for three months. While there, she painted a series of murals on the walls which can still be seen today. When she eventually was allowed to be free in her own country, she returned to a Dublin which did not want her. She had no home of her own and little money in which to attain one. The anti-treaty Republicans were shunned by the society in Dublin. 
she found it difficult once again to get her art published, as it was not favourable among those who had taken charge of the country. She moved from house to house, and when suitors came to try and woo her, she insisted that she was still a married woman. In 1932, her circumstances finally began to change, as a pension was introduced by de Valera for those who fought for Ireland. This freed her from her financial worries. She lived for many years in a flat in Nassau Street with a balcony overlooking the sports grounds of Trinity College. From the mid-1940s, Grace's health began to decline. She was brought to a hospital a number of times but refused to stay as she felt that the hospitals restricted freedom she had fought for and her husband had died for. On the 13th of December 1955, Grace's life ceased to be suddenly. It is at this thought that I hope upon hopes that the stories are real. That as Grace faded from existence, white lights and pearly gates appeared in her vision. I dearly hope that Grace and Joseph were reunited, and while in the land of the living they were never spared a second of a private moment towards the end, it is my hope for them that for the rest of eternity they are walking the Dublin canals hand in hand together, alone. Today's music was written, produced and performed by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. Grace's story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help to support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan is Anam Dunn, Gurv Mahakut, Slonanish.